turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. You know, in 2 Corinthians, we're told, and I suppose we'll get into this in more depth as we study 1 Peter, that one of the reasons that God lets us suffer is so that he might comfort us. And the primary reason that he lets us suffer and comforts us is that when someone else goes through suffering, we can comfort them, as Paul said, with the comfort that God has comforted you. God is preparing you, and I don't know the trials that you're going through. I don't know the tests that you're going through. You don't know the tests that I go through. But I know that God is going to use it in your life to cause you to minister to somebody. you have been in a life situation where you have scratched your head and wondered why God was allowing certain things to happen in your life. Perhaps the Apostle Peter had some similar thoughts. You know, God was working in Peter's life through some of Peter's mistakes and sufferings, preparing him, among other things, to write the book of 1 Peter. Welcome to today's Verse by Verse program. We are in the very early parts of the series titled Our Living Hope. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you're able to follow along with your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, who is pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We have a lot of interesting things to learn as we go through this series in 1 Peter. So let's jump right in to today's program. God was preparing Peter to write this letter. God was working in Peter's life to understand what it's like to go through suffering, to go through trials and testings, to know what it's like to feel that you're without hope, and to know what it's like to have hope reborn in your heart. And that's just what this passage is about, because these people were like Peter. In the midst of their trials and testings, they had a distorted perspective of their salvation, of God's kingdom, of the Messiah. And it's so easy when suffering comes to not remember the hope that God has for us. They needed to be reminded that they had hope because of the resurrection of Christ, a living hope. And Peter is the perfect person to tell them about that because what they need to hear, he's experienced. As I studied this scripture, I thought, what an encouragement to me, what an encouragement to you that God, as he was preparing Peter, is preparing you for something. Obviously not to write scripture, but that God is so vitally interested in us that he has something very special for you that he's preparing you for. You know, in 2 Corinthians, we're told, and I suppose we'll get into this in more depth as we study 1 Peter, that one of the reasons that God lets us suffer is so that he might comfort us. And the primary reason that he lets us suffer and comforts us is that when someone else goes through suffering, we can comfort them, as Paul said, with the comfort that God has comforted you. 
God is preparing you, and I don't know the trials that you're going through. I don't know the tests that you're going through. You don't know the tests that I go through. But I know that God is going to use it in your life to cause you to minister to somebody. If you don't just quit and run away, thank God Peter didn't quit. That's what I appreciate about him. Though the time and the day got dark, Peter was able to rebound. Though he was up and down, he wasn't out. He repented. He was a big enough man to admit he was wrong and to accept God's forgiveness and to go on and minister. And he let God use his past failures and experiences to minister to others. And that's what God wants to do with you and with me. The past is over. Let God use that. Don't get on a guilt trip. Let God use that to cause you to be able to go on and further serve him. God will use anything in your life. I find most of the time in my life, God uses my failures more than my successes to encourage people and minister. Let's look at the text. All by way of introduction, we do have an outline tonight. You know I couldn't teach without an outline. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. Peter is writing to a group of Christians he calls aliens. In the King James Version, it says strangers. The word strangers in our English language, when we hear that word, we think of someone with whom we're not acquainted, someone who's a foreigner, someone whom we don't know very well. But the Greek word means much more than that. The Greek word, and I'm going to try to pronounce it right, parapidemo. And it's taken from three words, para, which means alongside of, epi, which means upon, and demos, which is used in biblical Greek to refer to a people of a heathen city. Let me put it all together. In other words, what Peter is saying is that these people are those who are Christians who have settled down alongside of the unsaved. These are aliens because they're Christians and they have settled down alongside of a heathen people, the unsaved people, like us. We are Christians who God has strategically placed us in a world and we've settled down alongside of unsaved friends, unsaved neighbors, unsaved relatives, unsaved school acquaintances, unsaved business associates. We are aliens. We are strangers. In a sense, we are not like anyone else. As Peter will tell us later, we are a peculiar people. We are strangers. And then he says something else. He says, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And some of these things are technical, and we just want to get out from this part. But the word scattered is the Greek word diaspora, which can be translated the dispersion. Maybe in your translation it has that term, the dispersion. Now this is interesting, technical but interesting. The term the dispersion was a term used to classify Jewish people living outside of Palestine. And they would just say that these people who did not live in Jerusalem or Palestine were those of the dispersion. I want you to look in your Bibles to John chapter 7. You'll see how this is used. It's very interesting because from this, I think we can make a wrong conclusion, which I will try to correct, but a lot of commentators, in my opinion, have made a wrong conclusion from this. John chapter 7, verse 33. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Now he's obviously speaking about going back to heaven, but they misunderstood. He said, You shall seek me, and you shall not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said one to another, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? For a Jew to live outside of Palestine meant that he was part of the dispersion. He lived amongst the Greek Gentile people. Now, from that, some have concluded 
that the people that Peter is writing to are Jewish Christians. There are some also who say that the people he's writing to are Gentile Christians. I believe, and I think I can show from Scripture, that the people that Peter is writing to are Jewish and Gentile Christians. And most commentaries will state that they're Jewish Christians, which I think misses a great deal of this book. And let me show you. Let's look at the one reason why there were Jews who Peter was writing to. First of all, Peter is the apostle to the Jews, right? Just as Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So it only makes sense that he's going to minister to Jews. Secondly, there are many Old Testament quotations, quotes, in this book, which would make sense that the people familiar with this and the people who Peter is relating to are Jewish Christians. Not only that, there is much Old Testament terminology and allusions in this book, this letter. But as far as the Gentiles, get ready in your Bible, 1 Peter, to turn there. To say that it's only Jewish Christians is to miss much of this book. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. The Jewish people did not have a futile way of life inherited from their forefathers. They had a rich heritage. And Peter would not say to any Jew that you had a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That could only refer to Gentiles who had a pagan upbringing. Secondly, look at chapter 2, verse 10. This could not refer to the Jewish people. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Obviously, he's referring to Gentiles who never entered into the commonwealth of Israel. Then chapter 4, verse 3. For the time already is past for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is not the picture of Jewish people in that day and age. He said you've carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Because why? Because they are Gentiles. And then if we go back to the first chapter, verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That's a picture of Gentile pagan ignorance. The Jews had the Bible. They were not ignorant. They were rebellious. But the Gentiles were ignorant as well as rebellious. And so I think from that we can conclude that the dispersion here is used in the sense to describe Christians, Jews and Gentiles, who are not only scattered over the face of the earth, but also away from their true homeland. Not Palestine, but heaven. They were on earth, but Paul says your citizenship is in heaven. And so I think that Peter is using this in a spiritual sense that your true home, your real home is not here. You're like an alien scattered here because your real home is in heaven from whence your salvation comes. They were scattered in the Roman provinces located in Asia Minor. Not really in Asia, but Asia Minor. And today, just for your own understanding, today that would be modern-day Turkey. That's where Peter is writing. That's the location in the world. They were people being persecuted for their faith. Now, the Jewish Christians might not have had a big problem with being persecuted for their faith because, quite frankly, the Jewish people have always been persecuted. And we stated last week that anti-Semitism was really a big thing in Rome at that time and a big thing throughout the Roman provinces. So to the Jewish Christians, it would be really something old for them. But this would be something new for Gentile Christians. They had never been persecuted. It's just like in our day and age. For someone, let's say from my background, being raised in New York, to hear things against the Jews wouldn't startle me. But for you to be persecuted because you're a Gentile might be something new to some of you.
We ought to try it someday. That's the kind of setting. This is new. This is a totally new experience for most of these people, who probably most of them were Gentiles at this point. Now, when suffering comes, it's essential that there be a foundation. And I think that's why the Apostle Peter, before he says anything else, he deals with their foundation, and that's salvation found in Christ. When we suffer and when we're persecuted, the first thing that we fall back on is that we really know Christ, don't we? He's the rock. Nothing else really matters. Your material possessions don't really matter when persecution comes. It's your relationship with Christ. And so I think that's why Peter opens up his letter by giving us a clear picture of salvation. The Apostle Peter is going to start out this letter by telling us four facts about salvation that give us hope. We need hope. Peter says, here's the facts about your salvation. Some of these things you know, but maybe you've never heard these things in this perspective. He writes, first of all, the end of verse 1, who are chosen, and into verse 2, connect them, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's a rich verse. The first thing that Peter says is, number one, it's a planned salvation. God plans it. It's not based on you. It's based on God, his sovereignty who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In eternity past, God the Father planned your salvation and my salvation and their salvation and every Christian's salvation. Do you know how he did it? He chose you. Now, I don't know how you feel about the doctrine of election. It really isn't important how you feel. The Word of God teaches it. We don't understand it. We can figure it out. We don't know who the elect are. We are scattered upon the face of the earth to share the gospel with everyone. But God has chosen some. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, and who strongly believed in election, and said, if I knew that everyone who was elect had a yellow streak going down their back, he said, I would go around picking up people's shirts and finding out if they had a yellow streak. Nobody knows who's elect. Only God. But the word of God says we are chosen. God doesn't choose you based on your choosing him. That's what some people think, that God looked ahead and saw that I would make the choice someday, and therefore, based on my choosing him, God chose me. You know, that doesn't even make sense. God is so great that God didn't have to look ahead and see what you would do. God planned it. God chose you. How he did that, I don't know. And how that works in with our free will and making a choice, nobody knows. Somebody has put it this way. Let me see if I can remember it. I didn't have it in my notes. They said this. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to respond to salvation are like two ropes that are parallel. And from our perspective on earth, these two ropes are parallel, and that's all we see. But somewhere far above us where we cannot see, where we cannot even fathom, those ropes interlock and they become one. And it perfectly works out. The obstacle is only God knows how they work out. You and I do not know how they work out. When I was a young Christian, I'm sure that Gary Pearson would remember this. I struggled over this doctrine, and I struggled. I was so proud as to tell Gary one day, I figured it out. Can you imagine that? And He just laughed. Almost 10 years later, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. But you'll never figure it out. I say that kiddingly. You will never figure it out. But the Bible says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He planned it. God's choice, you ask, what is his foreknowledge? It simply means that God knew beforehand what was best. Sometimes, depending on the context, it means God's foreordination. God not only foreknew it, he foreordained it. Look at 1 Peter 1.20. Speaking of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You think that God just knew ahead of time Christ would die for the sins of the world? No, God foreordained it. But you have to see how that word works out in its context. In this context, the first Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we'd have to say it simply means that God knew ahead of time what was best, and based on that, God chose you. Why he did it, I don't know. I think I told you the story about the fellow who came to Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary and said, I have a terrible problem. He said, I don't know why did God choose Judas. And Hendricks said, I've got a bigger problem. Why did God choose you? And that's true. Why did he choose us? I don't know. But the Bible says he did. God planned it. Ephesians chapter 1, perhaps the richest book dealing with the election of God. You see, this helps to get a perspective of salvation, because if you don't believe in this, when troubles come, if you don't have a sovereign God, maybe he's not sovereign enough to handle your trials. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. It was according to his will, not according to your will, not according to mine. God plans it. God knew all about it. You're chosen. Look at the next part. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctification is a big word. It's a 50-cent word that simply means that God sets us apart. It's the Holy Spirit's job to set you and I apart. Now, putting the Father's work and the Spirit's work together, what do we mean? We mean this, that God the Father chose the sinner out from among mankind to be the recipients of the setting apart work of the Spirit, in which work the Holy Spirit sets the sinner apart from his unbelief to what? How does he work in you? That's an amazing thing. God the Spirit works in you in conformity to the Father's will, to his choosing you, that sometime in time and in history, God the Spirit breaks into your heart and into your daily life and does a work in you so that you respond to Christ. How? Look at the next part. That you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Usually, when we refer to obedience of Jesus Christ, we talk about a Christian's obedience. That's not what it's talking about. The result of the Father's choosing, the result of the Spirit of God setting you apart is for obedience to Christ in the sense of salvation, that you put your trust in Christ in time and history. When God chose you, the Spirit worked in you, you responded and you could not help it. You put your trust in Christ. Obedience is a term that is sometimes used in Scripture to tell us about salvation. In Acts 6-7, the Bible says, And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, that's the Jewish priests, we're becoming obedient to the faith. Obedience in this context means the same thing as in that. Obedience in the sense of they obeyed the Spirit of God and put their trust in Christ. In Romans 1.5 we read, Through who we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among Gentiles for his name's sake. Same thought. Obedience. Salvation. Look at the next part. This results in the blood of Christ cleansing us. It results in cleansing the sinner and making him a new creature. The sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that's an Old Testament picture. And it refers to the Levitical priest, the ritual he went through where the priest would take the blood of the sacrificed animal and sprinkle the people and symbolically they would be cleansed from their sin. That's what Peter is saying, that the blood of Christ cleanses you. But the point that we're saying is simply this. 
God is sovereign. He planned your salvation. So when trials come along, you've got a sovereign God. It's very simple. I don't want to stretch it out that much. If God is so sovereign that he plans your salvation, do you think the trials that you go through, do you think the trials that they went through caught God by surprise? It's no accident that you're saved, and it's no accident that the trials have come. If your God is not big enough to plan your salvation, he's certainly not going to be big enough to handle your suffering. That's the whole point Peter is making. He's big enough to save you, to plan it, to work it all out. He's also big enough to handle your problems on earth. That's the kind of God we have. And it brings hope to us. It brings hope to my heart to know that God is so great. Sometimes we say the term almighty God. Willie Dismore and I were just talking about that this week. Almighty God. Sometimes we forget the term all. He's almighty. And if he's so great that he plans salvation in eternity past, he certainly can take care of your problems and mine. That gives us hope. God cares, doesn't he? You know, there's no accidents in the Christian life. There are only incidents. Every one of us goes through things. I can recall a conversation I had with somebody not too long ago that didn't have this perspective. We were talking about Johnny Erickson, who became really crippled for life when she dove off of the Chesapeake Bay and landed on her head in the water, and she's now a quadriplegic. I was speaking to some Christians about this, and you know what this one person's response was? Well, it's her fault. Can't expect God to bail her out of that. She should have known better. And I thought, what a perspective to have. When this person goes through trials, is that their perspective? You know, God is sovereign. All things work together for good. All things. God is sovereign to plan your salvation. He's sovereign to carry it out in your life. He says also something else. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. The term fullest measure means to abound greatly. It's not a term that's used elsewhere in Scripture in the sense of greeting. What is he saying? Listen, you aren't in heaven yet. Though God plans it, you are not in heaven yet. You know that. I know that. You're right in the middle of persecution. You're right in the middle of trials, of suffering. But listen, God planned your salvation, and he can give you all the grace that you need. Grace is that strength. It's not talking here about grace for salvation. They already have that. God can give you all the grace you need, all the peace you need. He's so sovereign to plan your salvation. He's sovereign to give you the grace when you need it. God gives grace to the humble, the scripture says. And the peace he's talking about is not peace with God, it's the peace of God that you need in trials today. Grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. But not only is it a planned salvation, it's a present salvation, verse 3. And here's where we really get into the text. God didn't just plan your salvation, but he followed through and he made it reality in your life. Aren't you glad? It's not some kind of just jigsaw puzzle up in heaven. God worked it through so that it's reality for you and me today. It's a present salvation. It's not something that just is in the past. It's today. It's now. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be what? Born again, but now we're born again. Not in the future, now. Now we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our salvation is now. We have a living hope now. It's a present reality. We have it now based on the great mercy of God. You know what mercy is? Mercy. Someone has said that really mercy is not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. But mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve hell. But in his mercy, we've been born again. We don't deserve heaven, but in his grace, we have it. We are presently born again. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we read, 
In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now let's stop there for a moment. Our salvation now is a salvation that is not complete. Number one, it's a salvation over the penalty of sin. It's a salvation over the power of sin, but it is not a salvation over the presence of sin. And in this passage in Ephesians, it's kind of parallel because he says, now you have the Holy Spirit of promise, that great promise. And then he goes on to say, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit has been given you, which is what salvation is and is what being born again is. It's receiving God's spirit. You're born again in your spirit. You have received the Holy Spirit and he is given it's the word of God says, as a pledge, a down payment that what has taken place now, which is incomplete, will someday be complete in heaven. I loved the explanation Pastor Steve gave about mercy and grace toward the end of today's program. What we deserve has been changed because of Jesus. What we don't deserve has been made available also because of Jesus. Thank you for joining us for today's verse-by-verse program as we work our way through the book of 1 Peter. How do we know that our salvation is real and that one day our trials, problems, and sin will no longer be part of our lives? Well, I could tell you the answer, but that would spoil the surprise for next time. So I hope to see you then. 